Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. Most of us probably have the desire to travel somewhere around the world, but probably not in the way my next guest did. Author and minister James Emery White went on a pilgrimage to some of the most important sites in the history of the Christian faith. The Eagle and Child Pub in England, St Catherine's Monastery in Egypt, the Billy Graham Library in North Carolina, Tenboom House in Holland, each holding very different spiritual significance. It's a different way of travelling, a different approach to our Christian walk. James has written about his experiences in a book to give us a sense of what life is like in Christ. He calls it a traveller's guide to the kingdom, journeying through the Christian life. It's going to be a very interesting chat. James Emery White, welcome to Open House. Well, it's an honour to be with you. Thank you for having me. Look forward to our journey together, James. How was the idea of this pilgrimage first planted in your mind, James? Uh, kind of that uh, two things that spurred it on. One was I love to travel, and these uh, sites were very meaningful to me. They were actual places that I wanted to go and I have gone in my life as a pilgrimage and to explore and to deepen my faith and to get a better understanding of some of what's happened in history and also how it applies to my own spiritual life. So they were very personal places for me. The second thing that happened was, as I began to think, how would I best pour into another person's life? Uh, if I were to mentor, coach, encourage another person in the Christian life, how would I do it ideally? And the answer was very clear to me. I mean, obviously, I would open up my life, we'd spend time together, we would do life together, but if I could take them places, that, to me, would put the entire thing into an adrenaline mode and would be the most powerful way that I could imagine of uh, pouring into someone else's life. I mentioned some of the diverse range of places that you take us through in your book. Let's go through a couple of specifics. The Eagle and Child Pub in England. For those who don't know that, it may seem a strange place to take us. <laughs> yes, although I, I confess I like a good pub. <laughs> uh, the reason that uh, the Eagle and Child Pub is uh, very special is because that's where the Inklings met. The Inklings were a group of uh, writers and, and Christian thinkers uh, that included C.S. Lewis, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, um, and, uh, and others. And that is the pub where they would meet weekly to go over their writings, to talk about faith, to um, have good community. And it was from that creative uh, uh, synergy that was there that we have everything from Lord of the Rings to the Chronicles of Narnia to mere Christianity. But the real heart of that is that in that place, in that pub, we can get a window into a life like C.S. Lewis. And through C.S. Lewis, in that chapter, I explore what does it mean to be converted. Mm. The, the book really is a walk through the Christian life, whether you're a new Christian or you've been a Christ follower for years, and it all does begin with conversion. And so what does it mean to be converted? The reason Lewis is intriguing for that is because he said he was the most reluctant convert that ever lived. Uh, those that knew him said that he was the most thoroughly converted man they'd ever met. And so through his life and through the place of that pub, and the book tries to creatively take you to these places and introduce you to various lives, we also explore the dynamic of conversion. What does that mean to be converted heart, soul, mind, and strength? Take us to the Iona Abbey in Scotland, James. What's the significance of that place? Very different place. Very different. 
you know, the Celts in, in Celtic Christianity, uh, which largely began in Iona, uh, they talked about thin places, an interesting concept that there are places on this planet where communion with God, it was a thin place. He was there. The, 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 the wall separating us from the transcendent was thin. Well, Celtic spirituality has always fascinated me in terms of the Christian faith, largely because that's how the West became Christian again. Christianity uh, re-evangelized the West largely through the Celtic faith that was preserved after the fall of Rome. But the reason Iona is so fascinating is because that was where Columba was. It was it was the heart of the missionary enterprise. It was the most vibrant of the monastic communities. And it's a very difficult place to get to. This really was on the edge of the world. Yes. And when you go there, it is a sacred, holy place. There's just no other way to describe it. It is still uh, meaningful to this day for anyone who goes and the ancient ruins that are there and uh, the many kings and others, uh, Macbeth and others who are, who are buried there that are are famous throughout history. Um, you know, the Book of Kells uh, arguably was was probably actually created there before it was moved to Ireland. I mean, it's a fascinating place to go. But it's where you look very hard at what it's mean to be spiritual and to connect with your spiritual life. And what does it mean to be a spiritual person? And I use that, that abbey um, as a way of looking at throughout all of history how we have formed our spiritual lives and how that place itself holds so much for us. One of the other places with deep historical significance that you take us through is St. Catherine's Monastery in Egypt and deep ties in the biblical past. It's interesting how very few people, when you say St. Catherine's, they don't quite know what you're talking about. Um, St. Catherine's is the monastery that was built on the base of Mount Sinai. And it was originally built to protect the burning bush, which is there to this day. And whether you think it's the original burning bush or not, there is an ancient bush there that they claim is the burning bush. And intriguingly, supposedly no roots will ever grow from it. In other words, you can't start another bush from it. And scientists have looked at it and say that, well, we only we do know it's centuries old. We don't know how old, but it's at least centuries. The fascinating thing, but the monastery is built around the supposed burning bush. And uh, this is back in the 300s and 400s. And it was so sacred that Muhammad himself gave a patent of protection, which is why to this day, in the middle of Egypt, in the middle of uh, Muslim territory, it is there's this Christian monastery that is protected by a patent from Muhammad himself. And it's built at the base of Mount Sinai, where you can go and, and you know see where the Ten Commandments were given and such. And it's it's the oldest place of biblical history you can go to. Uh, anywhere on the planet. I mean, even more so than the Holy Land. Uh, it goes all the way back. And uh, it's a fascinating place to go to. And I use that chapter to talk about how we really can be led by God. And of course, being at St. Catherine's, we tell the story of Moses. But in a different kind of way, how you can listen to God, hear from God, a word from God, just like Moses did. What does it mean, though, to be led? And so we use St. Catherine's and the story of Moses and their rootedness in history to explore what that means for the Christ follower today. One of the many things I love about your book is that it takes us through so many different, not only places, but eras as well. There's an interesting choice you've made in South Africa, and that's the Apartheid Museum, racing forward to the modern era. Why have you done that, James? 
I was actually in South Africa um, working. Uh, the church that I have the privilege of serving um, has taken on a, a fairly large area in Lusaka, Zambia, uh, for AIDS orphans, and we sponsor hundreds of AIDS orphans in that area and doing microeconomic development projects and other such things. But uh, I was in South Africa for a few days prior to going up to Zambia, and unbeknownst to me, when I was there, it was the 10th anniversary of apartheid. And I was able to participate, witness all those celebrations. And I found myself at the Apartheid Museum, which had just opened uh, just a little bit earlier in anticipation of the 10th anniversary. So I was one of the first people through that. And it was a stunning experience. It's much like the Holocaust Museum in Washington and other places where you, you take on a bit of a role as you enter. You are either a black person or a white person. And then you enter and you experience what it would have been like to have been that person at that time under apartheid. And I was black, and I was a you know given a black identity and entered through the black entrance, and and it, it, it is it is a shaping shaping place to go to. But I use that to talk about one of the most critical aspects of the Christian life, which is community and relationships and the one another's, and using a place where it so broke down, and then found some healing, it gave a way of exploring community for the Christian life, and what does that look like, because it's our deepest yearning. And what do you do when community breaks down? I mean, this is, this is the grit of the Christian life in many ways, and I couldn't think of a grittier place to explore the real nature of it than through uh, the Apartheid Museum. With forgiveness and reconciliation at their very heart. And that's the story, too. I mean, I end with a the wonderful story of Nelson Mandela and Robbins Island, where they, they, they uh, historians and others have said, if it hadn't been for his forgiving spirit, nothing good would have come that is now present in South Africa following apartheid. We're halfway through our journey with James Emery White and his book, The Traveller's Guide to the Kingdom, Journeying Through the Christian Life. James, I might blush when I refer to this next one, a, one particular cathedral in France. Take us through that one. <laughs> uh, Chartres Cathedral, uh, just outside of Paris, is, I think, my favorite ancient uh, cathedral in all of Western Europe. I think it's most authentic to, to the medieval era, and um, it is well known for its stained glass, but it really is just a, a, a sacred, it's been a sacred site for so long. In fact, it was one of those places like Stonehenge where, for whatever reason, that site has always been a place where people have gathered. It was an ancient Druid site, and then it became a Christian uh, cathedral and so forth. What I talk about through Chartres is sex and sexual intimacy. This is one of those subjects that is so... Uh, integral to our lives, and there's so much confusion as Christians. We either feel like we, we can't talk about it, or maybe we talk about it too much and in all the wrong ways, and we just distort it, and our, certainly our culture does. And yet the Bible is so honest and candid and refreshing and straightforward about sex, and the joy and glory and wonder and beauty of it. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but we forget that God created the orgasm, yes. and God created sexual intimacy, and he, and he declared it good. We're the ones who have made it bad. And so through Chartres, this place of holiness, 
and it's known for holiness, and it's known for honoring the virginity of Mary. In fact, her, her quote is there. Uh, one of the great relics of the Christian Church is preserved at Chartres. It seemed a wonderful place through the beauty, the holiness, the majesty of a cathedral to explore the beauty and the holiness of sex. And so in that chapter, it's, you know, quite frankly, a chapter on the Christian and sex, and one that I think is, uh, in many quarters, long overdue. It's a great choice, a great place to make that choice as well. Can I deal in our next three stopovers with three very significant people in the Christian faith? The first is Billy Graham, and you go to his library in North Carolina. Yes, uh, the library is fairly new, and it's, it's an amazing thing. And anyone who ever comes to the States and gets to the Carolinas should make a special effort to go to that. It's the only place I list in the United States, actually. Uh, not that there aren't others of significance, but... but Billy Graham was the dominant Christian figurehead, if you would, of the 20th century. And through his life, you really see, through him, the lens of 20th century history. And what strikes me about Billy, and uh, I know him, I've met him, I've spent time with him and with his wife Ruth in in Montreat before her her death. Uh, He served on the board of the school where I was president uh, for a season. What strikes me about him was such a deep sense of calling, a deep sense of calling. And if, if there's and, and this idea of a called life and doing what God would have you to do is such a, a heart passion of Christians. We have this idea of, oh, God, if only you'll tell me what to do, I will do it. Let me just fulfill my calling. Well, the chapter explores how to do that, how you discover your call, and it's through the lens of a man who led a very called life. And the library brings his life um, uh, through the lens of history uh, in a beautiful way to be experienced. And I really do think that he's one of the, the great models to look at. And it's such a wonderful place to be preserved for people to go visit. Yes, he is. One of the other people is Corrie ten Boom. You go to her house in Holland. Speaking of Billy and, and now Corey, one of the things that strikes me, I work significantly with a lot of 20-somethings. My church that I lead is almost entirely, you know, 20-somethings and 30-somethings, very young church. They've never heard of Billy Graham, and they've certainly never heard of Corey Ten Boom. And I, I very much wanted to include Corey and uh, her home in Harlem in this book, because it was one of the most significant pilgrimages I ever went to. Her life has formed me more than almost any other biography. Uh, her book, The Hiding Place, I think is one of the most incredible Christian biographies of any era. I read it about every 18 to 24 months, and I'm a wreck every time at various places, no matter how many times I've read these events. And I just don't want her life lost and her story of trust, and that's what the chapter explores, trust. Her um, home in Harlem is completely, perfectly preserved. I I do mean, it's like a time capsule. Uh, the, the, the watch shop is still in operation. I have a, I have a clock in our home, a wind-up, small, miniature grandfather clock that I bought from the Tin Booms from the watch shop because it's still operating. And the floor is above, and you can actually go into the hiding place where, uh, if people aren't familiar with her story, where they hid Jews during the time of World War II and uh, to save them from extermination and death. And then they themselves were caught or sent to Ravensbrook, and it endured the hell of that, at least Corey did. She lost almost every member of her family there, sadly. And then she lived a life of enormous uh, 
influence afterwards. But her story is a story of trust. What does it mean to trust God as we go through life when we don't know what the future holds or what we're going through is extremely difficult? And uh, that is uh, that was a, a very meaningful place for me to go and a very important story for me to tell. Yes. The other person, going back a few centuries now, the third person that I wanted to speak of was Martin Luther. And you make the point that in his life it demonstrates we can all make history. Yes. I mean, who would have thought Luther would have ever done that if he knew anything about his story? <laughs> he was an interesting guy. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that I talk about in that chapter was that he didn't nail five theses to the door or nine theses to the door. He nailed 95. He, he had a big, big dream and a big idea. And uh, Luther showed how someone really can have big ideas toward God and make history. And God wants to do that through all of us who are willing to follow suit. Luther um, set a fire. I mean, he was the ignition for the Reformation. There is no doubt about that. And through this one solitary life, history, in a very profound way, that has shaped, uh, I would argue, all of culture and civilization to this day, certainly in the West, uh, was sparked by this man yes. and this one life, which makes him fascinating, fascinating to study. And we go to Wittenberg in the chapter, and we look at this idea of how you can make history. What was it that marked his life and the lives of others that have made history? And we look at those points and those principles and those ideas. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, he's a, uh, all of these people are, but, I mean, Luther's a fascinating life and a hero to many. Yes, indeed. The last pace I wanted you to take us is in Germany as well, and it's a confronting choice that you've made. It's the Dachau concentration camp, and you describe it as one of the most chilling places in the world. It's an interesting choice. And I purposely wanted to end the book with that, mm. because I think that you could talk about all the dynamics of the Christian life. You can talk about conversion and, and being led by God and spiritual formation and community and sexuality and calling and, and making a difference with your life and ignore the elephant in the room, which is how we will have doubts. We will have dark nights of the soul. We will have times when God seems far away. There will be times when God makes no sense. And it strikes me that many in the Christian community don't want to talk about this. It's swept under the rug as if somehow, well, we can't talk about that because somehow that's not safe, or that's where we're vulnerable, or that's where maybe God is vulnerable. So we're not going to talk about, well, the Dachau's. I feel the exact opposite. I think that Dachau should be front and center in places like it. We need to talk about these things and put them in the larger story, and the larger story of what God is doing on this world, and where good and evil fits in, and free will and choice, and, and, um, and God's sovereignty in the midst of all of that. It, it is a fascinating uh, area to explore. It's absolutely critical, and if we don't explore it, it actually sows more seeds of doubt. So... Uh, I always wanted to go to a concentration camp, and uh, Dachau was the one I wanted to go to most of all, because it was the first. It was the first of all the concentration camps, and it was the one that was the model for all the ones that followed. And uh, it's set up very uh, intentionally to be visited and toured. It's right outside of Munich, so it's more accessible than many of the others. It was a chilling place to go. The, the, you, would, you would walk, for example... And you would see a, a trench that looked like it was like a small riverbed. And I remember trying to figure out why was there this trench, this riverbed here, you know, that was rather significant. And then 
you find out that this was a killing ground where they would shoot people in the head with bullets, and there were so many killed that they had to create a, a small riverbed for the blood to flow. Now, when you stand there and you're looking at something like that, or you're standing in a gas chamber, or you're standing in the experimental areas where they did atrocious medical experiments, you're confronted with evil, and you're confronted with the issues of doubt that people have about how can a good God allow bad things. I think that's healthy. There's significant answers that the Christian faith has that if you don't know those answers, then that doubt can be the seed of unbelief as opposed to greater faith and trust and, and love. I think it's a really important choice to be in the book, and it strikes me one of the many things in your very rich journey are some of those hard choices that it's not all happy, optimistic places or lives to artificially gloss up the Christian faith. No. In fact, I, if, if anyone has um, is a thinking person, the Christian faith, what makes it so attractive is its authenticity and its, its, its realness. Um, we, we worship a crucified God, and when you understand all that was involved with why this God was crucified, the Christian faith becomes extraordinarily authentic in a way that no other faith, no other worldview offers our world. And I think that in many ways, the, some of the things that Christ followers shy away from are actually at the very heart of the dynamic of the appeal of the Christian faith. And mixed in with that is a powerful sense of hope as well. Oh my, that's the whole point. It's how it all points to hope and how it's through uh, looking at evil and looking how uh, God allowed that and the freedom of choice that we have, how that points toward this greater good. And that really is where evil needs to be contextualized. There's When people look at things like the recent shootings that were here in the United States in the movie theater with the, the Batman movie, or they look at 9-11, or they look at these other atrocities around the world, and Dachau, of course, they make that the story. What is helpful about the Christian faith is that it grieves over that, and that breaks the heart of God, but it gives us a larger narrative, a larger story that helps explain that, where God is allowing these things to happen for a greater good so that those would use their freedom to indeed choose Him. And there's a, there's a, a grand story, a meta-narrative, that goes beyond these smaller narratives that the Christians simply need to wrap their arms around and understand. James Emery White, I've thoroughly enjoyed reading your Traveller's Guide to the Kingdom. It's a genius idea and totally enjoyed our chat tonight. Thanks very much for taking us through it. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.